started. Welcome. I'm really happy to see that there are enough political junkies at Queen's that we've sustained an interest in something that's already finished, and now we have to figure out what it is. I'm Karen Dubinsky with Shannon Brown and an alien Scott Rutherford. We're uh, the SNID people this year. If you don't know about us and you want to know more, sign on to the uh, email sheet that Shannon will send around. We have regular every Thursday gatherings, and if you're on the email list, we will let you know about it. The next one coming up a week a week today um, is Kim Rigel, a professor from Wilfrid Laurier University, who will be speaking on migration issues. If you sign up for the list, you'll get a regular notification. Let me also take a minute to plug another event of Probable Interest, a book tour by Mark Bardo on water issues here in Kingston on the 17th, or sorry, excuse me, the 19th. 17th is my kid's birthday. <laughs> 19th of, no, of November, um, at the, actually at the library in the evening. Um, I am not going to say anything else and, and except thank you to our panel for coming and thank you to Professor Rose from Political Studies for chairing. Excellent. Uh, well, thank you very much, Karen, and um, welcome, everybody. Before we begin, I would um, like to acknowledge that we are on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples and uh, recognize that we are here uh, um, long after they have lived here for, for a long time. And their presence here reminds us that we are able to enjoy their, their territory to live, work, and play. So um, we have a really great uh, election roundtable, although it's more of a rectangular table. Um, it's a linear table. Uh, and uh, I'm really thrilled that the, the process has been designed for our panelists to give brief opening comments and then open it up to you. So they will have about five to seven minutes each and then we'll have a long time to uh, engage in the issues that they raise. So it being Halloween, I'm not gonna say any trick or treat jokes, but I think you are in for a lot of treats today. I had to get that out of the way. So on your uh, right, if I can introduce uh, the panel to you, uh, pardon me, on your left, um, <laughs> right. Ambulatory dyslexia, that's what it's called, uh, is Kyla Tayanhara, who is a Canada Research Chair in Economy and Environment and Assistant Professor in the School of Environmental Studies and the Department of Global Development Studies. Her research examines the intersection between environmental governance and the global economic system. And her most recent book, Green Keynesianism and Global Financial Crisis, explores the lessons learned from green stimulus programs in 2008 and 2009, uh, and how a comprehensive Green New Deal could help deliver a just transition to a low carbon economy. She's just been at Queen's for a year. Uh, prior to that, she was enjoying sunshine in Australia for over a decade, something she won't enjoy today. Um, <clears throat> uh, as a dual citizen, she voted in the most recent Australian federal election in May. Uh, sitting beside uh, Kyla is Colin Gray, and Colin is a newly appointed faculty member in the Queen's Faculty of Law. He is an assistant professor there where he works <clears throat> in the area of immigration law. Prior to Queen's, Colin was a professor at the Université du, Mo du, du Québec à Montréal and a legal advisor to the Immigration and Refugee Board of Canada. Sitting beside um, uh, Colin, is no stranger to many of us. Uh, Hugh Siegel is known to uh, many of us as an articulate and thoughtful spokesperson for progressive politics. Uh, he has many uh, accomplishments. Uh, notable among them, he's, he, he was Chief of Staff to former Ontario Premier Bill Davis, uh, former Prime Minister Brian Mulroney. Uh, Hugh has been Principal at Massey College, uh, and he's been a longtime advocate for basic income, something that he's worked for the, with the Ontario government on, and his latest book, Bootstraps Need Books, uh, Boots, excuse me, documents that works, and, and according to UBC Press, comes out tomorrow, so congratulations on that, Hugh. Uh, sitting beside Hugh is uh, Georgina Riel. Georgina's lived in Kingston for the last eight, <clears throat> excuse me, for the last 18 years with her husband, Barrington, and their two sons, Miles and Ellis. Georgina is the owner of Riel, Cultural Consulting. She was the first female director of Four Directions Indigenous Student Centre 
a nominee for the provincial NDP, a candidate for city council, a local artist, educator, and most recently, the recipient of the Ben Ree Foundation Leadership Award. Congratulations, Georgina, on that. Uh, so, so with that, why don't I turn it over to Georgina to offer some thoughts on what just happened. Um, it is my responsibility to always introduce myself in my traditional language, which is Ojibwe. Um, I said White Bear Woman is my traditional name. I'm ready to come back to one of the first nations of the Ojibwas. Um, and I always greet my ancestors that are in the room, whether you can see them, feel them, or hear them. Um, I always welcome them. So I feel like after the election on October 22nd, like Christmas was over. <laughs> and we're just like, what do we do now with our stretchy pants? just <laughs> <laughs> like, hello. So I also felt that on Christmas Day, that there was this beautiful box with a nice bow and nicely decorated. I thought, oh, with this shape and size of this present, it is the present that I wanted. But then when I unwrapped it, it's that present that your parents like to do the tricky with, where they put a big box and they put something else inside, but it has nothing to do with on the outside of the box. So that's what I felt the outcome of the election was. On a national level, nobody really won. In the context, yes, we did re-elect the same prime minister, um, but nobody really won a sense of all the parties, including the Bloc Québécois, who was much more successful in their provincial um, area than all the other people. I think people scratched their heads and said, what just happened? Because we've seen a conversation on national level that was depicting various forms of racism and scandals, uh, across all of the parties, except for one particular party um, that did not have to have a racial issue as the, as the head leader. However, within writings of these parties, their candidates also struggled. They had, they had scandals within those particular areas. Some became much more prominent on a national level. Some were very good at uh, being slipped through the cracks um, within the news media. I also felt that, unfortunately, with these scandals, they kind of were like overshadowed with so many other things that they did not get the full address that they deserved. And in doing so, this is why we have minority government. That I think some people felt that with a deep breath they took when they got to the voting box and they sat there in their nice little cardboard section, it was so much about an eeny meeny. It wasn't about eeny meeny waimo, it was just eeny meeny. So we heard this narrative over and over again that this was a two-choice party race. And as much as they would have liked to vote for other parties, they felt that strategic voting was the best option for them. And therein lies the problem that we always have when it comes to elections, is that we vote in a sense of fear. We don't vote in a sense of what we really believe in, because we feel that that vote, that vote is being wasted. The national narrative also clinged on to that relationship that they have and we have with TV viewers, with social media. I really felt that this was the strongest that social media was ever used to target millennial voters, to target the next generation of voters that will be coming up and be eligible to vote. There was far more engagement with younger people than ever before. And I think that's where a lot of that fear came in for older people, that the younger vote was really gonna take on that strong momentum. On a local level, it was incredible to see how many debates that happened here in Kingston. We had a total of eight debates and two panels. However, those panels still felt like debates. So it's been the largest that this local writing has ever had. And out of those local writings, we had three in particular that were very notable to me. One was at St. Lawrence, one was at Centennial Public School, and one was at KCBI. They were notable to me because these were young people. These were the voices of the upcoming voters and then also people that are in that next generation um, and the next six to 10 years voting. They took part in what's called the Student for Vote. And what was really nice about this forum that was created, these young people had to research, articulate the reasons why the candidates here at the local level were important to them. So the teachers in the schools that took part in this created a ballot box, and that was done on a national level through Elections Canada. 
Um, and these students have these debates at their school. And what was really wonderful about that is that they, ha they actually asked the toughest questions out of anybody. Hmm. I was sharing this with Hugh. That those three particular events gave them the toughest questions and made every candidate on that stage accountable. Or unlike the ones that were done in other forums and TV ones, we asked good questions, but these students did not at all edit themselves because they were dealing with adults. And that was really refreshing and, and really uh, nice to see. So to see that engagement is really important because civic engagement um, does not get taught on a regular scale. Um, it's something that you know we either invite our children to the table and have these kind of conversations or we invite them to our living rooms late at night, 10, 9 o'clock, whatever it may be, to watch the news. It's something that I grew up with with my father, you know, watching the national news, sitting there with Barbara from, and growing up and learning what it is to be a political, engaged citizen. Whether you're a political activist or advocate, the start of just being engaged and having that conversation with your children. So seeing that on the writing level was really wonderful, but also seeing that on the national level and seeing the wave that certain parties received through the NDP, they did have a wave. The outcome is not exactly what they were hoping to get. They did lose seats. There was some uh, important conversation that the strategists are having with their party, like the rest of the parties, but there was this wave of interest, and that's the most important thing, is seeing the momentum that was happening. That my hope is that the younger people, if they do not grow into a sense of fear when they're going to the voting box, that they do have a strong voice, and that when they do, they vote with their heart, they vote with their true intentions. So I'm hoping for the next election, whether the provincial or even to the federal one, that when they go to that voting box and on the day of, of election, that when they hear the, the outcome of what we see of the voting um, results, that they're not gonna feel that disappointment, that they're gonna feel that their change means something, that Christmas Day, of whatever that E-Day is, was really important for them. So I think it's important to have that conversation and we'll engage more with the, with the, scandal, the scandals and the wonderful upswings that we've, we've seen in the national line area. So thank you, and I'll pass this on to Hugh. Is that all right? Can you hear me? You're good? Yeah. Okay. Um, so um, I'm going to come at it slightly differently from the way in which Georgina um, provided her insights. Um, so I don't think elections are about platform. I don't think they're about promises that the parties make, competing grocery lists of this tax credit versus that tax credit product. I think they're about, uh, especially since the advent of, of um, media with large and now social media, they're really about coming to a conclusion about which leader and cluster of politicians are most likely to be able to manage, not now, in circumstances that we all understand, where unemployment is, where our American friends are, where we are with Brexit, where we are with climate change, but how they would manage when things get actually worse and more demanding. Because in effect, that's what voters are doing. They're not really voting for the present. They are voting for the future. So the main purpose of an election campaign is to make sure that what your leader stands for, how he or she might manage in a difficult circumstances, emerges from the nature of your content. And um, on that basis, it was pretty clear that Mr. Scheer didn't meet any of the requirements necessary to generate public confidence in his ability to manage in a difficult circumstance. Because it was clear that he couldn't even manage in the present circumstance where he started substantially ahead in the polls. Um, my friend Peter McKay made a reference the other day that the Conservatives had a chance to score a goal on an empty net and failed. I think that's an overstatement. Um, I've run against Liberals twice now for Parliament and been defeated on both occasions, including in the 1972 minority election, which, by the way, for those of you have any interest in history at all. Pierre Trudeau, the father, did worse against mm -hmm. Robert Stanfield in the mm -hmm. 1972 minority election. He only won by two seats. Mm -hmm. Versus Justin Trudeau, who won by many more seats against Mr. Scheer, which says something about Mr. Stanfield. But it also says something about 
the conclusion that Canadians were coming to about who, in a choice of not perfect people, which is what politics always generates, would be the one they could trust the most, not perfectly, and who they could not trust at all. I thought that in the last week of the campaign, when the, when the Conservatives set aside any pretense to modesty, uh, supplication, uh, submitting their best ideas to the public, and began to articulate, here's how we will run the country in the first hundred days after I am Prime Minister, you can just feel the sweep back to the Liberals from a whole bunch of other parties, people who are not happy with the Liberals and were thinking about voting for the New Democrats or for the Greens uh, or, or for others, for the Bloc Québécois, and you could just see the sweep come back because Canadians took a good, hard look at what the sheer Conservatives didn't represent in terms of compelling qualities and decided they weren't prepared to actually give them the license to govern, which strikes me as a long-time progressive Conservative as a pretty rational decision. So I would say that what the Conservatives did was blow, to use the hockey analogy, and I apologize for that, but just to stay consistent with Peter McKay, they did not fail to score a goal on an open net in a breakaway. They failed in two or three power plays and scored a couple of goals on their own net. <laughs> <laughs> and generally speaking, you know, hockey game or an election that tends to be unhelpful <laughs> as you go forward. Um, the other thing that I would say is that this election was perhaps made more, um, more problematic in the eyes of voters, not because of the normal back and forth and the cheap shots, which we saw in many circumstances, but because of the things that simply were not discussed. So while I give sheer credit for not stirring up a negative engagement on immigration, because there would have been pressure in his party to do that, as we sit here, the fact that nobody laid out what would be a thoughtful migration policy for Canada and a population policy for Canada going forward, both in terms of our international responsibilities relative to people who are now migrants through no fault of their own, and our own obligations to grow our own country into something other than a massive geography wildly underpopulated without any meaningful clout on issues that really matter to us, like trade, like social justice, like international humanitarian engagement. Um, I guess I would make the final uh, generic content is that there is a brand of Canadian conservatism, which is actually quite different from European conservatism. It is very different from American conservatism, thank God for that. <laughs> and it's even different from Australian conservatism, I would like to refer to our colleague at the end of the table, because uh, they have taken a route that is substantially more right-wing than you'd even see amongst Canadian progressive conservatives in the broad tradition. But when you leave that broad Canadian tradition aside and start to work with derivative pieces, like having a view on Brexit, that's really important in Newfoundland and Nova Scotia, like um, beginning to say that we're going to have a radical shift in our foreign policy, set aside international law, and open up an embassy in Jerusalem. Why? What's the purpose? Jimmy Carter tried to do that. Joe Clark tried to do that. And yes, Mr. Trump has done that, but I don't think that is in and of itself a justification for anything. <laughs> Please God. The other thing that I would say was very offensive about the campaign, and all the parties deserve some credit for this. The three million Canadians who live beneath the poverty line never came up. Didn't come up in the TV debates, not in French, not in English. It didn't come up in the radio debates. It just didn't come up. And despite all the um, land acknowledgments and other things that are no doubt, good, no, no, no doubt done in good faith, the actual discussion of reparations, the actual discussion of beginning to fulfill the absolute obligation we have to First Nations for what was stolen from them never came up. Mm -hmm. There'll be different views about how to do that or even when to start. And you, you have to have views which are developed in consultation with First Nations. But that being said, the fact that you have a national campaign in this part of our history and none of the major political parties decides to raise that 
says that they have very little respect for the Canadian book. And there is no more horrific kind of bigotry than the bigotry of diminished expectations. Hmm. And that's what the voters played back. Two other comments which I just make in terms of the population flow. The Conservatives lost seats in every part of the country <laughs> where population density is rapidly increasing. They held seats in rural areas, which could largely be defined as white, Protestant, and dominated by men over 50. Those aren't bad things, just the demographic nature of where those areas are. The future of our urbanizing country, wildly more urbanized than many of our European colleagues even, is that the density of population is a necessary thing for the effect efficacy and environmental management going forward. Therefore, there will be more density, hopefully done in an environmentally responsible way. Therefore, the conservatives are going to see their own constituency dilute and diminish over time, as long as they stay on that center-right, narrow, derivative form of conservatism, as opposed to the tradition represented by people who were not themselves perfect, by Diefenbaker and by uh, Mr. Davis and even Mr. Mulroney and Mr. Hatfield, and even Mr. Lawhee, whose first bill when he became Premier of Alberta was the, was the Alberta Human Rights Act. Um, as long as that tradition is set aside for the kind of score on your own goal, derivative, Trumper, British, whatever thing, Canadian voters are going to say, very interesting, we wish you well, so it's nothing to do with us. Never has. Um, agrarian, agrarian rather, a populism, commitment to equality of opportunity, belief in the value of instruments that are fair-minded and institutionally coherent, belief in the nationalism, which is not exclusionary, but actually quite positive. That's what defines conservatism in Canada. And when you set that brand aside, as they did on the issue of foreign aid, when you see a leader of a party who was Speaker of the House of Commons for many years, say, we're going to slash all those wealthy countries who now get foreign aid. Iran, um, uh, Italy. Right? <laughs> Either he doesn't know that those countries got foreign aid because they went through serious natural disasters and the government of Canada wrote serious checks to be helpful to the Red Cross uh, and various other organizations on the ground in a, in a series of extremists. Or he did know, but hope none of us would know that's why he could get away with it. And the good news is he didn't. So the Canadian voters deserve, I think, credit for surgical accuracy. Uh, Mr. Trudeau did not get a majority. He probably didn't deserve one. But he did deserve a robust minority. And now he has an opportunity to do what his father did, quite frankly, which is put some water in his wine, work with others, share a little bit of um, of uh, agenda with the other legitimate political parties who did okay in this last election and work forward on a consensual basis. Um, something we could learn from our First Nations in the North and elsewhere in terms of how you make real progress. Canadians said this partisanship is excessive. The use of social media, the way you've used it, political parties, is offensive. We're not going to get sucked in and we're not going to give any of you what you want. But they did give Canada a very workable parliament, so I'm optimistic about prospects. Thank you. Thank you, Hugh. <laughs> you can pass the microphone. Colin. Okay, uh, thank So thank you, Jonathan, and thanks for the invitation. Um, kind of going to Hugh's point, uh, migration was not really discussed during the election at all. Migration is kind of my writ for this panel, uh, and that means that what I have to tell you is kind of a rather boring but not unhappy story, uh, which is that migration never did become a significant issue in this 2019 election as it was in 2015. Um, and actually, if you look at the platforms of the, of the different parties, it's actually quite difficult to find where immigration is even mentioned at all if you go on their websites and take a look. And that uh, speaks to sort of a decision by the parties kind of bracket immigration, uh, at least during the election campaign. So I think that leads to three questions. Uh, the first question is, 
why did we think immigration was going to be an issue? The second question is, why wasn't it? And the third is, what does that mean for Canada's immigration policy going forward? So to begin with why we thought immigration, or why I thought for what that's worth, immigration might be an issue, I think, first of all, uh, it's, uh, I thought that because in 2015, immigration was an issue. Immigration issues, refugee issues, uh, were played up by the Conservatives uh, to try to win support from people who oppose uh, immigration. Uh, and we saw a repudiation of that kind of politics. Uh, but it does seem to be the case that in other countries, uh, in other votes, referenda, elections, um, parties were able to appeal to immigration in a way that was quite polarizing in order to win. Uh, and so the especially right party, or sort of right-leaning parties, were able to appeal to immigration to sort of get power and then pursue the rest of their agenda. So why wouldn't uh, sort of right-leaning parties try to do that uh, here in Canada as well? Um, or why principally wouldn't the conservative party try to do that here in Canada as well? The second reason uh, that we might have thought that immigration would be an issue in the election this time around uh, was that there was actually available the same kind of event that leads to that kind of polarizing immigration politics in Canada. And I'm referring to uh, the surge of refugee protection claimants crossing over the border irregularly into Canada. Uh, the Liberals have been uh, widely criticized or significantly criticized for their handling of the surge of those uh, refugee protection claimants. Uh, and, uh, I th uh, and in fact, the way they handled the surge of refugee protection claimants was an issue in both the Ontario and the Quebec elections last year. So once again, why wouldn't we expect that to be more of an issue in this year's federal election? The third reason is you did see emerging in the media uh, polls discussing how Canadians were concerned about the levels of immigration coming into Canada. So in June, uh, it was widely reported that Alleger, according to a Leger poll, 63% of Canadians thought that the government should prioritize limiting immigration uh, as opposed to what they're planning to do, which is raising immigration levels significantly. And the last reason, obviously, for thinking that immigration might be an issue in the campaign this year is the People's Party of Canada, mm -hmm. Maxine Bernier's People's Party of Canada, uh, which and that party, and Mr. Bernier clearly sought to grow its support by raising red flags of the volume of immigration and criticizing uh, what Mr. Bernier called extreme multiculturalism. So if the Conservative Party of Mr. Scheer was, was concerned about losing support to the People's Party of Canada, uh, it seemed reasonable to think that what they would try to do is shore up their support by dog whistling on immigration. So there are all these reasons to think that immigration would be an issue, and yet I think with the, uh, with the exception of Quebec's secularism bill, it really wasn't. Um, as, we saw, as we saw, the People's Party got only 1.6% of the vote. Mr. Bernier lost his seat. Uh, Andrew Scheer of the Conservative Party did do some dog whistling. On October 9th, he went to the border. Uh, he vowed to close the loophole on the safer country agreement, uh, which is supposed to prevent, uh, notionally supposed to prevent, uh, refugee protection claimants from coming into Canada if they've spent time in the United States to claim asylum here. Um, it, Mr. Scheer also promised to hire additional border guards and to move the Immigration and Refugee Board to hotspots on the border where irregular migrants were um, coming across uh, so that their claims could be adjudicated there. Um, and last, and I think most bizarrely, in the speech that he gave at the border, he raised concerns about uh, members of the notorious Central American gang, the MS-13, coming into Canada in large numbers and claiming asylum. But even though he did all that, um, at least my impression was that these issues were raised and they faded rather quickly. And it's actually even hard to find, I couldn't find, uh, how the Liberals responded to Mr. Scheer when he raised those issues. So overall, immigration actually didn't really come up in 2019 the way it did in 2015. And why, what, why didn't it come up? Here, all I can do is sort of speculate. I mean, I think there's the obvious answer that uh, more Canadians were much more concerned about climate change in 2019 than they were in 2015. But I also think, and I think this speaks to some of the things that you said, uh, that 
Canadians in 2015, and also this time around, seem to want to reject the kind of grotesque politics that we see surrounding immigration in countries like the United States and uh, Britain and other European countries. And so we're simply unwilling to go down that road. And so even if you can, and you probably should, poke holes in a, sort of a narrative that Canadians like to tell themselves about the fact that we do immigration right, about the fact that um, uh, multiculturalism in Canada is a success, um, even if you can poke holes in that, Canadian, the Canadians who vote, at least, are not willing to elevate their concerns about immigration to the point where it dominates all of their issues. Um, we're, so we're not willing to make our politics ugly in that way. Um, and so finally, the last question, if that's true, or if that's even maybe partly true, uh, the last question is, what does this mean for immigration policy in Canada going forward? Frankly, I think it means more continuity uh, in the kinds of policies that we've seen to date. Um, rise, we'll see rising levels of immigration with an eff emphasis on economic and skilled immigration. Uh, the, go the government has pledged to raise the intake of uh, uh, new immigrants to between 350,000 and 400,000 by 2021. We will see um, a liberal government that continues to make efforts to control uh, uh, some border crossers and to improve the efficiency in, uh, with which refugee protection claims are treated. So in the last, last year's budget, uh, the government put aside $1.2 billion to efforts at border control. Uh, and finally, there will be ongoing talk about how to modernize or change uh, the Safe Third Country Agreement. Um, but I doubt that the government is going to find a, a willing negotiating partner in the, uh, within the United States because any change to the Safe Third Country Agreement would be more asylum seekers staying in the United States. So if we're going to ch see change on that front, it's probably going to come in the form of uh, um, uh, court challenges, uh, the, the first of which is going, uh, is going to be argued before the federal court next week. Um, so I think that what's sort of important to see is that despite Mr. Shear's dog whistling, uh, a lot of the policies that we're going to continue to see are not that different from what the conservatives themselves would have put in place, if you bracket and put aside sort of border control. Um, and so it is possible that Canada is returning to a kind of broad consensus about what our immigration policy should be like. And so we do end up with this rather pleasant and boring story, which is exactly the kind of story Canadians like to tell themselves, um, unless you think that there's something wrong with the status quo. Great. Thank you very much, Colin. Yes. All right, so I think it's, it's, I wanted him to mention in the opening that I uh, had voted in the Australian election because really the way I approached this election with a great deal of fear, <laughs> as is mentioned earlier, uh, has a lot to do with how the Australian election played out. And I think it's interesting to, to compare the two because both were kind of dubbed climate uh, elections. Um, and that's for obvious reasons. Uh, the, the science over the, the past year that has come out of the IPCC report has been so, you know, and that's a pretty conservative organization, has been so shockingly uh, dire that I think it's uh, climate change has just come up into the, uh, into the media and into the collective psyche so much that it really was um, going to be a dominant issue even before we had the huge um, climate protest movements which saw 500,000 people marching in Montreal, uh, 800,000 nationwide on the 27th of um, of September, so only a month prior to the election, and 7.6 million people um, worldwide between the 20th and the 27th, making it one of the, the largest coordinated protests in history. So if we were ever going to have an election uh, about climate change, it seems like it was going to be this year, and all of the polling was suggesting that the majority of Canadians in every um, riding uh, were concerned about climate change. It was very high on the list for change. Um, so it seemed like that would play an important role, but the exact same thing you could have said before the Australian election. Um, and indeed, um, even more so because everyone, uh, all of the polling suggested that the Labour Party, which is sort of equivalent to the Liberal Party here, it gets a bit confusing because the Liberals there are the, the right wing uh, and Labour is sort of equivalent to the uh, Liberals here. 
Um, everyone thought that the government was going to change, um, and it didn't. And effectively, the coal industry uh, in Australia won that election, um, and there's going to be no action on, on climate change. And I was very, very fearful um, that the same thing was going to happen here with the oil industry winning the election. Um, and instead, what we got in, as an outcome was that I saw, I saw an article that said that the oil industry views the outcome of the election as the worst possible result. Um, and as I am someone who thinks that the oil industry has lost uh, the opportunity to actually meaningfully contribute to the transition and now must be very um, forcefully opposed and dismantled, that to me is a good indication that this was a good outcome um, from an environmental <coughs> perspective. But nevertheless, I would say that my overall feeling about the election is one of relief um, rather than, than joy. So we're not going to be moving backwards and having the same debate about carbon taxes that we've been having for such a long time. Um, so that's a relief that we don't have to keep. Um, we're still doing it with, with the provinces challenging it, but that's going through the courts and will hopefully be dismissed at that level. But we're not going to have to go through that all again. Um, but we're still in the place where we have a carbon tax that is not going to get us anywhere near where we need to go to actually uh, address dangerous climate change. So, um, so that's sort of where I, I'm coming from. In terms of it being a minority government, I think that that is uh, beneficial from an environmental perspective uh, because I think that um, the NDP and the Bloc uh, and obviously the Greens all have stronger positions and they can hopefully at least nudge the Liberals uh, uh, in a few places. I think um, that one area where they can all sort of um, collectively agree on something is probably in, under the rubric of a Green New Deal, which basically has a lot of elements, um, but a lot of it is about uh, government putting investment uh, into new, um, new technologies, but also just um, existing um, known solutions to climate change and creating a just transition, so creating good jobs um, for people that um, need to move out of carbon-intensive sectors. So I think that's one area where they can cooperate. One area where there's going to be a little bit more contention is on, um, uh, obviously, the very controversial um, Trans Mountain Pipeline. That's not going to directly come up in terms of there's no need for a vote on it. It's still being contested in the courts. But there's no need for, for anything to come before Parliament to vote on it. The NDP and um, uh, Greens are obviously opposed to it. But it does still need to be built with public money because we own it. Um, so it will be interesting to see how budget uh, controversies play out in terms of uh, how will the NDP and Greens approach a budget that includes money, money to build a pipeline. Uh, and how will the Conservatives approach a budget where they might not like the other stuff in the budget, but they want the pipeline built. Um, so that might end up being uh, quite interesting. The other point I wanted to touch on, which already has been touched on here, um, and it's sort of a thing that's really, it, it's kind of bugging me, is this idea of electoral reform. Because uh, I saw the numbers, basically proportional representation would have resulted in 57 NDP and 22 Greens, as opposed to 24 NDP and 3 Greens. And obviously, with stronger environmental platforms, that would have been a better outcome. And yet, if you look at Australia, they have mandatory voting. They have proportional uh, representation in the Senate that gets voted in. And they have preferential voting. So I kid you not, the ballot that I, that I teched off was this long. Because you get to number everyone from, and there's, I was in, based in Sydney, so there was a huge number of independent parties and all sorts of everything you can think of, the hunters and fishers party, <coughs> the, the motorist party, everything. So you, you get to number. And that means you're never, uh, you never feel like you're throwing away your vote if you're voting um, on the basis of your principles. So you don't need to strategically vote. And yet they still ended up <laughs> with the worst outcome. The polling suggested everyone cared about the climate. It was a climate election. They still ended up with the coal industry winning. So I am like sort of still struggling with, I still believe in changing the electoral system in Canada, but I'm sort of struggling with the fact that we did get a better outcome here than we did somewhere with the federal <laughs> Um, I'll leave it at that for now. Excellent. Thank you very much. Well, thank you, panelists. I think you've given us lots of uh, substantial and meaty ideas that we can pursue in the next uh, little bit. And now it's uh, time to turn it over to you for questions based on that very wide and expansive overview of the election. So I'll turn it over to you. Jamie. Um, I wanted to ask Hugh, you mentioned uh, the 1972 
liberal minority government and people have commented that minorities in Canada tend to be uh, quite productive in the aftermath of that election. As you know quite well, the Manitoba and um, Canadian governments uh, leapt into the basic income, income experiment. Um, this is self-interested because I'm part of the local basic income outfit here. What do you think the chances of uh, a minority parliament or the other parties persuading the Liberals to do at least something with respect to basic income? So um, the good news is that there is still hope on the file and at the present time the flame is uh, brightest in Prince Edward Island. <laughs> they have a minority parliament, which answers part of your question. Now, all the parties, the Greens, the Progressive Conservatives, and in, in PEI they are Progressive Conservatives, the Liberals and the New Democrats are for a basic income. And they have been before the election. There's now an all-party working committee on designing a pilot. I was out, I had a chance to meet with them. I met with First Nations leadership in the province, the Mi'kmaq, First Nation, and others. And my sense is that there's a strong sense of community and engagement, and there's no partisan narrowness, which I think is hopeful. I think the game plan now is with a liberal government that will be dependent upon some other parties for some of its votes, is to have the liberal government pushed by the NDP and others uh, to say, guess what? We're not going to do 300 people in a sample in PTI. There's only 22,000 islanders who live beneath the poverty line. All of the province could be a pilot. Anybody beneath the poverty line being topped up by the basic income, and the country would benefit immensely from the data and the evidence <coughs> that emerges therefrom. It would be very important that the First Nations uh, on the island be brought into that design process at the beginning and not told about it after somebody else has decided what it should be. It's also, I think, important to note, and this connects with what our colleague from the law faculty was talking about, Prince Edward Island is changing. And it's changing for the better. All my life, there were 100,000 voters. Right? They have 157,000 residents now. And there's been a tremendous increase in immigration, largely from various parts of Asia. Fastest growing economy in Canada, as we speak. Lowest level of unemployment. So there's a whole bunch of very good mm. things going on. But the core communitarian values, which define the island, they have quite a fluid mix between urban and rural make it, I think, an outstanding place for a national pilot. And uh, I don't think Canadians would be resentful of the pilot being tried in, in a real, full-scale fashion in our smallest province. Thank you. Uh, yeah. Yep. Um, so I, I sort of thought that this was a climate election. And I guess I was, and I was very, very interested in the um, the thing that the CBC uh, did, where they got a, they, they sort of modeled each of the, the platforms. I don't know how many people saw this, uh, and they and the, there was sort of and what I, I guess what I got out of it was that even, even including it, there was you know the, the Conservatives would do the least, the Liberals would do a little bit more, and then the NDP would do a little bit more than that. But basically, the only platform that would actually deal with anything seriously would be the Green Party, right? And so uh, here, here we are. I'm not sure what's going to happen because it's almost, it seems almost certain that the pipeline is going to be built, right? Because Justin has to do something to make nice with Alberta. So I, I know, so I guess I, I'm not so sure that this was a good outcome for the Oh, oh, well, no. No, it wasn't a good outcome. That's why I said relief rather than joy. Yeah, it wasn't a good outcome. It was probably just the most, the best possible outcome right. given right. the conditions that we, and the electoral system that we have. Um, no, definitely. Um, so, yeah, so first of all, the, the platforms don't do enough, um, absolutely. And uh, how is that going to change? Uh, I'm changed just going to keep getting worse and worse, right? So every election from now on, as far as I'm concerned, will be a climate election. It's not going to go away. Um, if we manage to get electoral reform, maybe that will bring us some way 
although the Australian example just baffles me, but uh, you know, if we get more Greens in there with, uh, and, and NDP, I think we'll be, I think the NDP will take from this election that moving towards the environmental side was a good thing for them and that they will continue to do that. Um, and I hope that the Conservatives take from this that moving in the opposite direction was not a good thing. Uh, in terms of that Alberta alienation stuff, uh, the, everything I've seen has suggested Alberta always votes conservative. It's just that's that's what they do. I don't think he should be pandering to them. Um, also, because you know, not to be a horrible Easterner, but uh, if you compare what Alberta has done with their oil revenue to what Norway has mm -hmm. done, they shot themselves in the foot with their neoliberal model. And it, you know, not to say that we should just abandon them and not do anything, but what we need is to start a conversation about um, how we transition the people that are, are suffering from the lack of jobs, not how we continue to prop up the industries that are, don't care at all about people in Alberta and we'll just cut and run when it gets to financially risky. Um, not sure if I've gotten actually, actually to your question, but uh, I'm gonna add something. So it's been my experience that issues of principle are often actually pragmatic issues of design. Hmm. So we have um, the economic plumbing of the country is in something called the Federal Provincial Fiscal Relations Act, which defines the formula for equalization. So if you're in Alberta, part of your trope these days is they count all our energy revenues for the purpose of determining how high our per capita income is, and that makes us a net contributor to equalization for other poorer provinces. But Quebec doesn't count any of its hydro revenues for the same purpose. So there's some design issues we'd like to address. I think part of what we have to begin to discuss are some new definitions operationally for how we run Canada, which has nothing to do with the Constitution. We probably have to create a new category called climate refugees, because they're coming. And they're going to be a serious flow, and we have to have a humane and constructive policy to accommodate them. Um, we probably have to redesign equalization formula, not only around hydro and oil and all those things, we also have to start putting credits in for those governments that are doing just as my colleague suggested, investing substantially in reducing the effects of climate, uh, climate change and reducing the trend of emission growth over the next few years. So we haven't modernized our equalization formula for, I don't know, 25, 30 years at best, and it's now out of sync mm -hmm. with a new dynamic. The one other thought I would say, and this was my only disappointment with Elizabeth May, who I have the highest respect for, when she put out a detailed costing of her platform, which was very, I think, honorably done, she put out a detailed costing for free tuition, which is directly provincial jurisdiction. She put out uh, costing for all of her environmental measures, which, is, which touches upon provincial jurisdiction, to her credit. When it came to the basic income, she maintained her commitment to the policy, but off-ramped by saying, well, we really can't put any costs in our program until such time as we negotiate with the provinces. And here's the reality. We've seen it in Canada. We've seen it around the world. The poorest amongst us pay the highest price for the negative impact of climate change. They're the ones with the least resilience, the least capacity to respond. So my view is, you cannot have a climate change policy regulatory, tax, or others, unless you're dealing with lifting the poor amongst us so they have a chance of fighting back and making some of their own choices. So hopefully some of that may emerge in this coming parliament. At least I'm prepared to say a prayer on a daily basis for that time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Georgina, you wanted to jump in here. I'm just going to echo some of the conversations that have just been happening with the other panelists. So from... A young person's perspective, not me, I'm not saying I am, I'm saying just the people that are out there, that we even people that we see in front of City Hall every Friday, you know, very diligent young people, and what was expressed that we've seen on a global um, level, people coming out, that yes, I also thought that there would have been more people conversations, and actually more seats between the NDP and the Greens because of it. Like, how can we pursue the future if we're not even repairing and caring for Mother Earth. So I mean, we, we like to talk a good talk about preparing the future for you know, the young people that are here and for the ones that we haven't met yet. But 
that of all the parties, the limited conversations that were had with First Nations were almost nil. So that was a problem, that was a big problem on lots of things. So the social justice for Mother Earth, the social justice for people, the social justice for Indigenous people who are the, the first caretakers of this land were eliminated in conversations. Um, not to say that, oh, we were, we were consulted. I mean, hmm. saying that we're consulted is always a smack in the face. Like, we're, we're, a, we're a government. We are a level of government that we are part of the stakeholder conversations at the table when we're having these issues regarding climate change. We're talking about social justice, talking about people. They will share and express that people that are on the poverty line and below the poverty line, when you're knocking on doors, they're not talking about climate change. That's not their first, they're not, that's not their concern right now. People who have precarious employment, that's not their concern right now. They know that that discussion's out there, but that's not their primary relationship to what's important to who they are. So having the conversation of climate change and climate crisis was really important to have to people. And knowing that you know, there will be jobs, there will be jobs to be created, but how do you have that conversation in a good way to let people know that to be retrained, um, to have never had employment or skills, and how can they get those skill sets to be environmentally sound and have these jobs that are set up for them? Those are tough conversations. My hometown of Sault Ste. Marie was one of the cities that was supposed to be designated for basic income. And then obviously that was removed. Sault Ste. Marie struggles. It used to have a highly populated community, over 100,000 people. They're struggling at roughly like low 70s. The Algoma Steel, which is Esther, it's, it's had like several thousand names it's been changed to River Buyers, has literally been going under each time where the employees have had to become you know, stakeholders to keep that place afloat. So they do struggle on these primary things. They wanted to have these new factory brought in. Well, the citizens said, no, this is a huge environmental issue. They actually voted against having a new plant put in that would damage the land, damage the environment, and make people sick, instead of actually having employment. So even their call center that employed 1,000 people is now moving. So you're having small cities, very rural cities like this, I don't have anything between them. They live in a silo, because the next biggest place is Thunder Bay, Sudbury, they're very isolated for employment use. So they really cannot even leave half the people, because where do they go for these services? So to have conversations about climate crisis is very difficult. And how do you make that relatable, that it transcends into the voting box? That's the next conversation we have to have for the next provincial election and next federal election. Thank you. Yes. Yeah, um, Canada's uh, conservative parties uh, seem to be in the hands of the right wing of that party, so both provincially and federally. And, um, do we have any, I guess, do you have any take on how many of the Tory winners um, are actually progressive conservatives rather than, than the more virulent variety? Um, that's a very good question. I would say, uh, well, let's talk about the provincial travesty first. So, uh, <laughs> uh, there was an actually quite a wonderful lead editorial in the Golden Mail today. Hmm. which talks about the previous conservative leader's position, Patrick Brown, which was for carbon tax. was for, uh, he marched in pride parades with joy and enthusiasm. He was totally opposite from the present mix that we now have. And then he was um, set aside, I mean, complaints were made about his personal disposition, and he was never really given a chance to defend himself because I think there was already a conspiracy in the more right-wing caucus to remove him as leader in favor of what we now have, uh, which is misnamed Progressive Conservative. It's nothing of the kind. It's really the Ford Nation Party. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, you know, in a democracy, I guess it's all legitimate, but the gap between the promises made and what's actually happened is a clear contributor to why the Liberals did so well in the federal election uh, in this province, because voters sort of saw what that looked like and decided they didn't want to encourage it. I would say that um, in, in those areas where we have a mix of population, some parts of central Ontario, some parts of the Maritimes, um, certainly the few seats left in Quebec, we do have a mix of progressive conservatives. But this issue will be joined in April 
at the annual and general meeting of the party when our constitution, because of Dalton Camp, frankly, requires, if you don't win an election, the following question is put to all members of the party. Do you wish a leadership convention, yes or no? And as we sit here, I think that's already going to be a close-fought battle. And that's where we're going to find out not the politics of those who were elected, although that's important, but where the rank and file who are the membership of the party feel um, the party should be headed. And I would argue that all the evidence that we have seen makes it perfectly clear that unless we're prepared to be an urbane, centrist party uh, that is uh, both demographically and culturally diverse, um, we don't have the right to ask for the right to form a national government, let alone the prospect of so doing. Harold Macmillan, uh, when he was Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, made an interesting speech in, in, in the House of Commons where he said, parties of the right, if they do not reach to the center and the left for fresh ideas and new people, will turn in amongst them, upon themselves and be like snails and disappear under the sand forever. <laughs> that is that is that is the risk, yeah. frankly, that conservatives, unless they reconstitute, and obviously there's a group of us red Tories who, without being in any way malevolent towards any particular other group of conservatives, are of the view that uh, now is the time to make that change. Hmm. You want a, a supplemental? I have a supplementary. That's the the one of the results of this election is that uh, the uh, Western solidly in a block for conservatives. Um, and the, it seems to me that we had maybe a, a dance of the death where the conservatives were talking about the economy and jobs and the other parties were talking about climate change and the the um, and neither one was listening to the other. Um, so what we wound up with is, is, a, is a solid block of people who are saying we must have the oil industry um, going full great guns, we have to have that money or else all the jobs in Alberta will be will be gone and Saskatchewan and and we'll have devastation in, in these provinces. Um, whereas the rest of the country is saying if we ramp up the oil industry even more than it is now, we have to shut down the oil industry in, in Alberta and uh, Saskatchewan. So we have a chance of actually the world actually surviving the next uh, 50 years. <coughs> Well, for better or for worse, if we take a good look at the political results on election night, uh, in excess of 70% of Canadians voted for carbon taxes, action on climate change, and completing that pipeline. Whether we like it or not, whether we think it's rational is a whole other debate, but that's how those who voted for the progressive conser the conservative party, rather, and the liberal party voted. And they do represent uh, two-thirds of the membership or more of the House of Commons. So that's part of the dynamic that the Prime Minister now has to address. Um, yeah, in the back row. Uh, hi, thank you, everyone. Um, my name is Aisha. I'm a first-time voter, so it, it was a kind of an interesting election for me, too. Although I uh, voted probably in line with what I voted in Turkey back home. Uh, and that being said, I'm also quite used to losing elections. So <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but I was wondering, you know... I should so am I. So I was uh, wondering, I mean, I, I, I love Georgina, you know, your kind of comments on basically the youth and the next generation of uh, waters and next generation of urban poor, probably, uh, you know? And I was wondering, so in the 2010s, uh, the kind of the major tendency defining the youth was cynicism towards political engagement, uh, especially street politics. And then we see that shift, you know, kind of from cynicism to a momentum of today uh, in, in, in the elections. Uh, I was wondering, with the, uh, with the meh outcomes of this election, uh, what can be done to kind of prevent uh, this momentum based on social justice to turn into a massive disappointment and cynicism? <laughs> uh, Georgina, yeah. So going back when I first was introducing the, the, the vote for student that the Elections Canada proposed. So I think um, this is something that was on a national level. So as long as schools become really engaged at the elementary, high school level with their students, um, I think that's the first step. 
and keep that momentum. Uh, civics class is usually high school you know, content. Um, at the elementary level, it's not usually that's right. But it was really amazing to see the outpour at the elementary level of these students. Uh, much as I said, it was like all the students in this gymnasium, but how they engaged after the conversation with the candidates. So they were like, you know, they were like hugging and exciting and giving high fives. And I think that's important to show that, that, that relationship that people are real. Right, so they're not just figures on a TV, like they're present. So I think that's really important. And get that conversation again to have at a municipal level. So knowing that at municipal, provincial, and federal level, get these young people engaged. Getting this conversation to be real conversations, knowing that these people exist, you can see them on the streets or day-to-day -day stuff. That's a really important conversation to keep that momentum going. If we don't, we may lose those people too cynical. Because I've had ups and downs, like a really bad, blood pressure, right, of being cynical and saying, yeah, I need to go see a doctor because now my hot flashes where I have a high blood pressure or something. But if not, like, I felt really, like, engaged. It was great to be part of this election from an advisor role and standing outside and listening and watching and seeing how everything was unfolding so I could hear the people in the audience talking. And if they didn't ask questions directly, I could still hear what they're saying and asking. So that was like that fly on the wall relationship I had with this local riding's candidates. Um, and even the other candidates were very open knowing that my position in relationship to one of the candidates, they were still very honest uh, of how outcomes were in the debates. And I think what they started realizing is that the more debates they had, the more, the more relationships that they had, and more respect that they were gaining. There was a couple of times that you know we would see some words that were flying out of their mouths that were like, I don't know how you even came up with that because it's not even in your policy, but we have a party that had no policy at all. We didn't even have a platform. Um, so they just they just kind of went and spun off of fear, 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 fear. Um, so this, this young people were very good at dismissing those candidates and, and calling them on that, that fear mongering. So I think we as people, we as school educators, um, keep that engagement going is important and I think either Cynicism will happen because people will let that happen and they'll become disengaged or they'll become more engaged and they'll become very active and participatory citizens locally and nationally. Thank you for your question. Anyone else on the panel want to go? I would just jump in quickly to say that that's um, definitely a big concern in the environmental movement. We've got so much going right now, but how do we sustain that, especially if this is going to be a very, very long fight? Um, I think what you're going to see increasingly is um, a lot more of a, a positive message, particularly within the frame of the Green New Deal. Um, I know a lot of people think that this is an American term, it's not actually, it came from the UK back in 2008, but I think what's really great about it is um, that it really pulls in some of the things that um, the environmental movement hasn't always done a good job of, which is understanding issues of, that issues of social justice are environmental issues, it's all connected. So universal, whether you go for universal basic income or the job guarantee, which is what's in the Green New Deal and, and the US proposal, um, bringing that kind of issue in, recognizing that uh, indigenous rights, uh, you know, they're at the forefront of a lot of these battles, um, protecting uh, Mother Earth. So I think the movement is like, it's becoming bigger because it's being recognized that this is everything. It's, it's not just a very narrow um, topic that's just for tree hunters. It's about how we want to live in society. So I think that is what will keep people going, is that everyone can see that what they care about is in this bigger movement. Let me just give you one, perhaps, instrument of hope in all this. Um, despite the media, um, 500,000 Canadians marched on the issue of climate change during the campaign. Mm -hmm. The media was so consumed with the horse races, who was ahead and who was behind, they didn't really connect that to the dynamics of the politics on the street. But the people who marched did. And when you hear folks say, well, they're all young people, and that's right, and they're somebody's children, or they're somebody's grandchildren. And you not think those parents and grandparents didn't get a briefing from their kids about what happened in those marches? And I think that was actually visible in the vote. And the fact that one leader decided he'd be announcing a new highway rather than be marching in, in the part of the country where there was a huge march going on sent a very powerful signal. And my bet is that when the 
national election survey is done and you actually see the detailed breakdowns. In the last election, 2015, the uh, millennial vote went from the 29% participation factor to 58% participation factor, largely in support of the Liberal Party of Canada and Mr. Trudeau. My bet is the numbers for that millennial vote will be almost as high, if not higher, and they will be uniformly against the Conservatives. So I would say, quite frankly, that the, the, this is a sign of hope that when you decide something is good for or better than or not as bad as for the climate change agenda and something is actually horrific, you show up and vote, you can have an impact. So I'm kind of hopeful that that can be translated. I worry about another transition, not from engagement to cynicism, but from frustration to the kind of civil dissent we are now seeing in other countries on related and not disconnected issues. Um, and you know, uh, we haven't had much of that in this country since the Winnipeg general strike. But we have to give ourselves a hash, give our head a shake if we think that we can continue along our way and make no changes and actually adapt in no substantial way to the new reality and hope all of that will go away because summer holidays are soon. Those days are gone. Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. The CFRC Podcast Network at podcast.cfrc.ca is brought to you by the generous support of the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences.